Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Nicole Fleetwood, a 2021 MacArthur Fellow and art historian and curator. She is dedicated to exploring how the art of incarcerated people is essential to our understandings of contemporary art, the carceral state, and the humanity it contains. Her earlier work focused on representations of blackness in art, performance, and popular culture, particularly how assumptions within American culture about blackness are disrupted or reinforced by black artists and public figures. Nicole has a PhD from Stanford University, and from 2005 to 2021, she was affiliated with Rutgers University at New Brunswick with appointments in the Departments of American Studies and Art History. Nicole is currently the James Weldon Johns Professor in the Department of Media, Culture, and Communications at NYU. Her publications include Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration, 2020, which includes an accompanying museum exhibition of the same name. She organized and was the guest curator of the exhibition at MoMA PS1. Her additional books include Troubling Vision, Performance, Visuality, and Blackness, 2011, and On Racial Icons, 2015. Nicole also co-curated exhibitions and has been featured in several articles that include Art Forum, African American Review, and Arbiture, to name a few. Please visit the Cerebral Women website for an expanded and more thorough review of Nicole Fleetwood's amazing accomplishment. Enjoy this episode, and thank you. Nicole, I really appreciate your time, and I'm delighted to feature you on the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here, and I love your podcast. Thank you. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I love talking (laughs) to people like you, so I love it very much. When did you recognize your interests in visual art? I mean, that's an excellent question. And, and it's, it's maybe it's a hard question for me to answer because to be to be honest, I've always identified um, with books and words. I'm a, I'm a really textual person. Um, but I also know that um, whenever there's transformation taking place in my life that um, I have to visualize it first. I have to see it. Like, so then images be, are, become really important in terms of just like next steps. So at some point in graduate school, I went to Stanford for grad school. I was really interested in the relationship between um, the visual field and, and just subject formation, but specifically racialized and gendered subject formation. And thinking about our own interior lives and the, the visual world that we we might all share. 
and how jarring one's sense of self can be, especially as a Black woman in such a white supremacist, heteronormative visual culture. So I think I've just always been, I would say since, yeah, graduate school at Stanford in in the mid-90s, I've been preoccupied with with those tensions, those tensions between the, the kind of violence and relentlessness of dominant visual culture and our own interior lives and self-making and creative expressions that defy that violence. And I think I've looked at those tensions in a number of projects from my first book, which was called Troubling Vision, uh, Performance, Blackness and Visuality. And it was like literally thinking about this, this kind of tension and thinking about the troubling presence Black bodies in dominant visual culture, but also how Black artists will use this idea of, of troubling to create kind of a new image repertoire and to challenge the history of racialized visual violence. Um, and then in my second book on racial icons, I was looking at a set of images, widely circulating photographs of Black celebrities or political I- icons and the way that those images kind of negotiate, you know, a complex history that, you know, is again, one that's about settler colonialism and, and white supremacy and the various myths of, of the United States around racial progress and American democracy. So I did that through a set of visual images and also talked about like how the black icon is, you know, a, a, a figure who embodies contradiction as the icon is comes out of like a religious or sacred histories or etymology around um, veneration, almost deification and blackness, you know, throughout Western culture and um, Western epistemologies really is represents denigration, which is, you know, to literally to turn into someone who is below human and who is made as who is blackened as in smeared as in whose um, relevance and status is lowered. So thinking about like how the black icon straddles those two histories of denigration and veneration. And you can see that like really in a figure like Barack Obama or Serena Williams. Um, And then I also think about like, posthumous icons who are who who didn't survive anti-black violence like Trayvon Martin and his selfie with his hoodie and how that image circulates. And then more recently, over the past 10 years, I've worked on um, a project that that's about art and mass incarceration to and really to have a sustained engagement with the aesthetic um, and critical practices, especially among incarcerated people to create visual worlds with uh, the scarcity of materials available in prison that really defy the strictures of of the prison, which is to isolate, uh, to dehumanize, to turn the person into, you know, a a ward of the state who who exists to be punished. So I look at how creative engagements, the practices, aesthetic experimentations of incarcerated people really, again, defy those strictures, that that kind of dominant 
visual culture or what I call carcel visuality. What was the catalyst that led you to uh, research, conduct that research and, and write that book? So I, I started working on marking time art in the age of mass incarceration. But I mean, really, it was one particular image of my cousin DeAndre posing with my aunt Frances. And this was during a visit by my aunt Frances to DeAndre, who was incarcerated in a prison in Ohio, not far from where we grew up in Southwest Ohio. And DeAndre was um, arrested and convicted at the age of 16 and sent to an adult prison um, and um, spent almost 10 years in prison. And over, over the course of visits, he would take these images when people would come to visit him, including photographs that I took with him. But there was one particular image where he and my Aunt Frances's grandmother were smi smiling and they were hugging each other. And it just it's so reflective of Black family kinship and love and, and connection that we continue to practice, you know, as so many systems have, have tried to to really break up those family relationships um, from from the history of black people on this continent has been about um, separating black people from all they love and know. So I started to really work with that image and I actually worked with it through kind of meditation practices and I had it hanging in my house. And I remember one time in art history, a friend who's an art historian came over and asked about it. And then I just started writing about it and kind of writing to it. And then I hung up other images of my incarcerated loved ones. And I started sharing those images during pub public presentations. Whenever I was asked to speak at a university or a museum or a cultural center, I would just start talking about these images of my incarcerated loved ones. And, um, and the project grew really organically from there. People would come up to me afterwards and say, oh, I have similar kind of pictures, or I was in prison, or I know someone who was making art in prison. And it was, it was organic, like over a decade of my sharing and then people sharing with me and collaborating on formal and informal programs and initiatives. Um, I think one of the first big events that I did around the event around this research was at Rutgers in 2014. It was a conference that brought over 100 people together. Many of them were formerly incarcerated people. And it was one of the first kind of, you know, large gatherings of system impacted artists, activists, educators, lawyers. Um, and so many collaborations actually formed out of that meeting. Um, and a lot of the artists who are sent to, who are featured in Marking Time um, came to that event. And I, I just maintained relationships. I grew relationships with them, I should say, not maintained, that the relationships actually grew over time. And were you um, amazed at some of the, the art that um, you were seeing? Absolutely. I was blown away. I like to say that, you know, every step of the way that this, the kind of research was uh, the experience of like learning from artists held in punitive captivity um, has been really humbling. And it just uh, has committed me to being a student, you know, to always be in a position of learning and to know and to respect people for knowing more about specific things than I, than I do. And I think that that can be an uncomfortable position for academics and scholars and professors, um, but it's one that I really cherish. And I think it's at the center of this project is that 
I'm not an expert, I'm a student. And the only way that this project continues to evolve is that people are willing to share with me, to share their experiences, their resilience, their, how, their survival practices, their, you know, their trauma and their artwork. And I was, you know, I've been completely in awe of the ways that incarcerated people experiment with the very limited resources available to them to make incredible works of art. What do you enjoy most? I'm so impressed by you, but what do you enjoy most? Teaching at the university level, research, writing, being a curator? Yeah, I think it's hard for me to separate those things out because they're connected for me. Like, for example, um, I didn't know how much I liked public programming until I really got involved in it around this project. And I realized, oh, the more I was doing public programs, the more the project grew so that the public programming fit directly into my research, you know, and so it wasn't like a service thing or something separate from my research. But my heart is always it. I'm I'm an I'm an introverted, introspective person, and I, I prefer writing over. I prefer reading and writing over almost everything. But I also like to be in museums and galleries and in in front of art by myself from it's like a sacred experience for me like I I like when I can just be alone with a work of art and I know that's a privileged position to to even be able to say that because a lot of people can't experience art like that but it is something that to me that is like very similar very similar to praying or meditating when I'm just like with a work of art I understand that and what form of visual art do you prefer the most abstract figuration sculpture ceramics yeah, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty promiscuous. Yeah, I would, I would, I would not say that. I mean, I'm definitely much someone who's much more. I would say more into contemporary art than I am, you know, other time periods. Um, and um, yeah, I, I love it all. <laughs> yeah, I know, me too. What do you feel real change looks like within uh, art institutions? Oh, it's so I love I like your question. What do I think real change looks like within our institutions? It was um, last night I had the fortune of of hearing Angela Davis um, give a lecture at Rutgers University. And um, at one point she made this really insightful and, and in some ways kind of humorous, but but very, very serious critique of this current institutional language of, of DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and how kind of what a band-aid that is to real structural change, right? And that institutions that are based on exclusion, violence, collecting as a, as a kind of mode of racial capitalism, they can't approach change like, oh, we just need to add some new offices or we need to add people of color into the, the system that already exists, but they need to be radically reimagined. And so I think one of the most important ways for art institutions to be reimagined is as public spaces, like really as public spaces and not as like, oh, who's a member of this museum or who has the money to pay for admission to this museum and that the collections of the museum also are considered part of like public archives that people have access to. 
you know, if museums are supposed to reflect culture in, in, in the broadest sense, then if culture in the broadest sense cannot be owned or gatekept by a small elite group of people. I also think it's important too that museums are not just spaces of presentation, but they're actually spaces of pr production, that people don't go there to just see things that were have already been made and polished and framed, but that there's the feeling that, that culture is actually happening, being built, co-created in those spaces. What do you feel is the purpose of art? Well, I mean, there is one thing that I love above all things, and that's human creativity. And I think, and to me, that's what art is. Do you feel Black art can be defined? I like that you asked that question. And I think I would like to not try to define it because I actually like border crossings all the time. But I do think that it's, a, it's, it's important that people from art administrators to curators, to scholars, to artists have a stake in the idea of Black art, that that is something that people actively care about and they're actively working to not only produce it, but to amplify its significance and make sure that it's preserved. So I think that investment is absolutely vital in the idea of Black art. I want to quote you and just curious to, if you could elaborate on this on this quote on your quote. Uh, the quote is: "My work is in honor of the role of art in resisting oppressive structure." Do you recall where you were, like mentally, emotionally, when that thought entered your mind? Yeah, I was being interviewed by the MacArthur when I made that statement. Yeah, and they wanted me to be able to say, in the broadest sense, what what I thought was the significance of the work that I was doing. And for me, like, you know, I don't see myself outside of a long tradition of people practicing, archiving, thinking and writing about the way that marginalized and oppressed groups use their creativity to imagine otherwise, to create new worlds, to create new possibilities. And really to forge, you know, powerful relational practices of recognition and, and a really radical sense of belonging that systems of oppression really try to squash. Um, so I think that, you know, I brought up Angela Davis. I mean, I think she is, you know, a very powerful example of that. And I, and I think we see people in our communities, as well as, you know, people that we can elevate to like icon or superstardom or celebrity status, working on these various registers, but always understanding the power of human creativity to resist oppression, like that we actually have to be able to visualize otherwise in order to create otherwise. And that it's a collective, I think, you know, as much as it's also it's interior, it's also collective. Like to me, that's the really powerful thing about thing about like human creativity that it feels so intimate and interior. I mean, at some place it takes place on like literally, you know, in our in our in our mind's eye, but it's also about like really connecting us in in very expensive ways to to you know to, to kind of a broader 
a broader sense of belonging. And, and I think that that also, it like, it has a, a, a viscerality to it. Like when I, you know, when I, when I'm in awe of a work, it, it's not, it, it's not a head experience. It's a full body experience. There's like a visceral reaction to it. What are you excited about now? So I am working with a group of really thoughtful people to um, travel marking time and uh, the exhibition and it debuted at MoMA PS1 from September 2020 to April 2021. And since then, it's traveled to Birmingham. It was at the Abrams Engel Institute for Visual Arts on the campus of the University of Alabama, Birmingham in the fall of 2021. And, and in April, it's going, it's, it feels like a, a really special homecoming. It's going to travel to the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati, which is 30 minutes away from where I grew up and, you know, and where, and, you know, probably 30 to 40 minutes away from where that photograph that I described of my cousin DeAndre and my aunt Frances was taken. And, you know, and so it'll open there on, on April um, 22nd and it'll be up through August and, and we're going to do a series of programs while it's up. So I'm really excited about that. Continuing to travel. Um, we have some other venues that we're booking around it also. And um, I also recently um, was an awarded um, the Genevieve Young Writing Fellowship from the Gordon Parks Foundation to do a project about Gordon Parks and kind of his mid- mid-century artistic engagement. And so that's going to be both written, like a project that involves text and some cured, curatorial work. So I'm delighted about that as well. Yeah. And just to continue these conversations, I'm, I'm someone who likes to be in the, I, I like ideation. So I like to be able to, to throw ideas around with people and then to see what we can do to manifest them or to co-create together. You must provide so much inspiration to formerly incarcerated artists. I mean, the fact that their their work is appreciated and showcased, I mean, it must just be so uplifting for them and promising. Uh, it must it must feel really great. I appreciate you saying that, but I would say that it's absolutely there's a deep reciprocity. Like there's no way that this project could be what it what it has become and what it continues to become without people being super generous and sharing with me and my learning from people. So I think, you know, that kind of relational exchange, um, it continues to inspire me and hopefully, you know, and, and I think there's a lot of people who feel, who feel like this is their project too. And I think that's great that it's not, it's, it's it feels co-created. I really appreciate this conversation and you sharing with us your accomplishments and waking us up. This is my final question. How would you like to see your work, your passion impact the way people think? So, you know, I do think, again, like project is about elevating the significance of art and creativity to transforming society. And I think I've said this in a number of ways. But like for me, it, it, when people read the book or visit the exhibition, that I want them to be in awe of the artwork and also to be more engaged in, in the urgency of, of ending, ending prisons. Thank you so much, Nicole. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your interest in the project. And um, I would like to say that like one of the things that I 
I did before we started uh, the podcast. And, and one, things, one of the things I try to do at all my talking events is to just like reconnect with my mantra around this project, which is, may this be in the service of love and liberation. I love that. I'm going to steal that quote, actually. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.